News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. Thank you for listening. Well, Chinese tennis star Peng Shui has denied making uh, accusations of sexual assault in her first media interview since alleging a top Chinese leader had coerced her uh, to have sex. Ms. Peng sparked global concern uh, when she disappeared from public view after posting the allegations online. She has now said there had been a, a lot of misunderstandings about the post. The Women's Tennis Association said it was still concerned that she was being censored by the state. In the video interview with a Singaporean Chinese language newspaper, Ms. Peng explained that she has never said or written that anyone sexually assaulted her. In her original note, which was posted on the Chinese social media platform Weibo in November, she accused uh, uh, Chinese Vice Premier Zhang Guali of forcing her to have sex with him. Joining us now to discuss Peng Shui, but also uh, Canada-China relations, is Jeremy Nuttall. Mr. Nuttall is an investigative journalist with the Toronto Star based here in Vancouver. He has previously worked and lived in China. Jeremy, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So tell me, uh, Chinese tennis star Peng Shui denies sexual assault accusations uh, in a video that was uh, released online. Uh, do you believe the Chinese government has anything to do with this comment from Ms. Shui, or do you think this was a, a thoughtful comment that she made on her own? Well, I think it's definitely because of pressure from the Chinese government. Um, you know, this is almost a month or almost a month or over a month since she first made um, those allegations. Um, and we're still, uh, you know, we're, we're just now having her make the denial after she was uh, uh, missing for a while, after she had her bizarre interview with Olympic officials. Um, after all these things now, she's, she's putting out this video. It just doesn't smell right to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Women's T- uh, Tennis Association uh, was saying that they want a full, fair, and transparent investigation without censorship into the allegations. I guess that also says that the WTA doesn't believe that these comments made by Peng Shui, uh, she made independently. They still believe there's pressure on her. I'm assuming uh, that's what the WTA is saying without saying saying it. Yeah, I mean, if they... I, the way I look at it is if they believed her, they would be holding events in Shanghai and, and elsewhere in China again. Um, you know, they're still not having their, their they, they stood by the decision to have the, uh, the tennis events withdrawn from the country. And uh, I think that if they believed her, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, the WTA announcing that they're not going to hold events uh, in China. Um, in the context of other major sporting leagues, exhibition games in China, uh, how important was that announcement uh, earlier this year? Well, it was massive. I mean, we've had, you know, China, the, the dollars that China dangles in front of a lot of these international organizations are quite substantial, as is the promise of the Chinese market, which also rarely comes to fruition for a lot of industries. Um, so, you know, it's very hard for for businesses and sports organizations, which are businesses, um, to turn the money down. And so for the WTA to actually um, say, you know what, we're going to take a stand here and pull out was, was a massive decision. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see that combined with the pressure on Beijing now, or sorry, on the, the Olympic Committee right now um, over the uh, the treatment of Uyghurs in Xinjiang province. Uh, could, it could, you know, be the start of, 
international sporting organizations having to take a serious second look at holding events in China the way things are now. Is there um, a certain desperation, if, if it is the case where the Chinese government has put um, pressure on Peng uh, to make this statement online, um, it, it seems to me, if that is the case, the Chinese government or authorities or the Communist Party have lost control of the narrative, and there's a certain desperation to what they're doing. Yeah, that's part of the reason why this doesn't smell right to me, is because um, the, the, the Chinese Communist Party is notorious for having really bad propaganda and really bad ability to control narrative um, outside of its own borders, on particularly on stuff like this. And, you know, I, I, you would think that if something like this was happening with a, with a North American or European organization, uh, I'd say that a, a government would quietly just be ignoring it at this point. Um, but China feels like they haven't won a PR victory or something here, so they could, they're continuing to push the, the issue, which is quite classic of, of China, frankly. And, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's one of the reasons why I think it doesn't smell right is because they are still pushing it. Um, they, they feel like they haven't won. Yeah, when you think about the dollars, as you said, about the, the market that the Chinese government dangles before these organizations, the, the NBA has uh, had to backpedal after one of its uh, management made, raised issues in and around Chinese human rights abuses. Some players have done that as well. Um, if you look at uh, the Premier League and many of these uh, major international soccer leagues, also looking to enter the market, you got Formula One. Um, w, the, the, the WTA's stance is quite significant in that manner. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's one of the, uh, I mean, pretty much the only sporting organization that, is, that has uh, been really confrontational and uh, stern with China and, and broken off ties. And, I mean, until fans of these other leagues start demanding the same from these leagues, I doubt that we're, we're going to see a huge push. Um, but, you know, we'll see what the Olympics bring. Now, in regards to the Olympics, uh, a lot of athletes have said, look, we, um, we sh- should be able to compete. We spend our lives working towards this moment. Uh, and that is generally the case. But there have been sp- calls at, at the same time that we should boycott this. Now, there is a diplomatic boycott. Uh, do you think the Canadian public are okay with that? Or do you believe um, there is going to be rising push for an athletic boycott as well? Um, well, you know, there was a, a recent story I did a couple weeks ago about polling done by Research Co., a Vancouver-based polling firm, that found uh, 53% of Canadians want a full boycott of the games, athletes and all. Um, so the appetite's there. Uh, whether or not that's going to grow, I mean, I guess it really only remains to be seen. But, you know, China doing things like dragging um, the Peng Shui uh, inc- uh, incident out of the, uh, you know, back out to the open after, you know, I'd say probably a week of it being kind of low and quiet, uh, certainly isn't going to help their case. Um, when I look at the bigger picture uh, of China uh, it, itself, um, do we as a country, as, 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 as a nation, need to fundamentally rethink our relationship with China, or at least how we address China, because right now, uh, you know, beyond just the Olympics, there seems to be no sort of coherent um, approach to China by our business community, our political community. Um, we just seem to be all muddled at the end of the day. There's no sort of coherent 
response to China on a variety of issues as a country. Yeah, you know, a lot of people would argue that's by design um, because there's very, very wealthy and connected people in this country making a lot of money off of their business in China. And uh, those same wealthy people, wealthy companies, big industry, uh, have connections, you know, in, in government here in Canada. Um, if you look at Australia, the United States, I mean, the United States last week passed a bill banning items in Xinjiang um, from even coming into the United States unless they were proven to be not made with forced labor. So the onus is now on the importer. Australia, we saw them stand up to China on the, uh, well, started with the, uh, the, the origins of coronavirus, um, and it led to a, a ton of bullying from China, and Australia persevered, um, you know, Yet, here's Canada um, that just, you know, purposely has this, well, no real direction kind of um, uh, approach to China. And, you know, a, a lot of uh, people like Charles Burton, um, you know, would, would probably tell you that, yeah, that's, that's by design, because it's better to, to have no policy than a policy that would uh, hurt powerful interests in this country. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you think Australia can do it uh, in regards to a... A firm response to China. They're, they have uh, it's a country with natural resources, which sells a lot of goods and services to China. It is a country by population that is smaller than Canada, yet its feet are firmly uh, planted in the ground in regards to Australia's um, values uh, and what they hold near and dear as, as as Aussies. Yet they can push back on China, a smaller country. Yet we can't. That's the part I find. Uh, just incredibly, it's, I'm flabbergasted by the fact that China seems, or Australia seems to be strong and they can articulate those thoughts in a very clear, concise manner and they don't mind the repercussions from China. But we seem to be that country that still can't respond to that bully who is kicking sand in your face. Yeah, I think there's a few things going on there. One is that Canada is pathologically pragmatic um, and uh, particularly our governing class. Uh, you know, Canadians love to be uh, very uh, patriotic about what we think our moral character is, but the, re- the reality of this country is that Canada has always uh, cared a lot about money and not so much where it comes from. And uh, maybe maybe the rank-and-file Canadians feel differently about that, but this is definitely something within our political and business class that's a noticeable trait of this country. Um, and Australia just has, I think, a... Um, I think they have a, a government that's uh, more in tune with what their the people, what the public actually is feeling and wants than Canada does, and uh, has more chutzpah to actually act on it. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. We're speaking to Jeremy Nuttall from the Toronto Star. Uh, we're looking at our relationship with China. Uh, Jeremy, uh, let's look back at 2021 just for a second. Uh, the two Michaels played such a significant role, uh, extensive coverage of Meng Jiawei and, and her court proceedings here in Vancouver. Um, what's to say something like this couldn't happen again in regards to our citizens being kidnapped by China? Hostage diplomacy is what they call it. I mean, there's nothing at this point, one could argue, if they get into another disagreement, a major disagreement, they couldn't kidnap a couple more Canadians uh, in in China if they needed to. I'd say that's going to happen 100%. I mean, people forget that the Mugwanjo incident wasn't the first time. The first time was the Garretts. 
um, who it was, I think it was 2013, um, were kidnapped uh, in response to Canada arresting uh, Sue Bin, accused of spying um, by the United States. Uh, so this is a regular thing. Uh, I think that we can definitely expect it again. And the fact that, uh, you know, it's, it's been shrugged off already. We already have people in Ottawa saying that, oh, it's time to get back to business and reset relations, which is, I mean, how do you reset? Like, you know, if your neighbor comes and punches you in the face, the next day are you going to say, hey, are we still going halfers on that fence? <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> you just kind of wonder what's, uh, you know, when, when Canada is going to actually uh, take a hard line here. So the fact that they didn't do anything and don't look like they're going to do much, uh, I think, you know, says that, uh, that it will happen again. Mm-hmm. Now, looking forward to 2022 for a moment, um, Huawei uh, as a company, the ambas- Chinese ambassador to, the United, uh, to Canada has already said that Huawei should be able to compete and uh, help Canada build its 5G infrastructure with our major telecom carriers like uh, uh, Lower Mainland's Telus or Bell or Rogers. Um, most people expect Canada to follow the lead of our other uh, Western intelligence agencies like the the UK, the US, uh, New Zealand and Australia and ban any Chinese company to help build our infrastructure for fear that it could be used for spying in the future. Um, do you expect the government to, to, to ban Huawei from participating in our 5G uh, infrastructure rollout? I certainly did at one point up until uh, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago where uh, the security committee, the, the liberal members on the security committee, uh, indicated that uh, they wouldn't be voting in favor of it. Now, that's not the same ban as the government is, is mulling over. Um, but to me, it, it's, it did signal um, where the liberal government is, uh, is heading, uh, unless it's a kind of a, of a, of a divided um, uh, you know, strategy to try to take some of the heat off. I'm not sure. But because ma- you know, major telecom companies in Canada have already said they're not going to use Huawei, um, you know, to me, it's, it seems like it's, it's, they'll just try to quietly avoid the issue even longer. Hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, most of them say that they're going with Ericsson anyway, so... Yes, so and and I think that's probably been forced in many cases because our other uh, uh, contemporary other other Western nations have already said no, and we're moving in this direction. Yeah. I guess the, in many ways Canada said we're going to move in that direction too, but we're not going to talk about it. It's just it's just going to happen, and we'll just try to uh, push this out as far as we possibly can. Now, uh, mm-hmm. looking uh, forward to 2022 as well. Now, last year. Uh, or sorry, this year in 2021, uh, CSIS warned the government and the opposition and all major political parties that there may be a Chinese influence campaign during the last federal election. It has now been proven by at least one think tank that there was meddling in Canada's election, federal election, in, in Richmond here locally, in, in both the ridings there, and potentially one other riding in Ontario. The Conservative Party has said that there must have been, there could potentially have been Chinese government meddling in up to 13 ridings in this country. Do you expect anything to come out from our federal government or an intelligence service to give greater evidence or to talk about pushback in any way uh, in regards to the meddling that we saw here now in 2021? And could things change in 2022 in regards to that? Because I'm just flabbergasted. Once again, where we have a foreign agent, in this case a national government, meddling in our election, and all you hear from Ottawa is crickets. I expect nothing. Um, I, I really don't expect anything anymore. And today we had news out that the uh, Conservatives aren't going to be pushing to have the Canada-China Committee 
um, brought back, the Special Committee on Canada-China Relations. Um, they say it's because the, with, with COVID and other uh, issues, House resources are too stretched. Um, and, for instance, there's a special committee that's been formed on Canada's uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. But, I mean, the question is, what's more important? Examining Canada's you know, withdrawal of a pretty minimal amount of uh, uh, forces from Afghanistan last year or the interference in a Canadian election where it possibly uh, had an effect on 13 ridings. Um, you know, and it's not like I know the Conservatives don't have a, a you know overall say over what committees are, are going to uh, be formed at all, etc. But it just seems to me like it's something that needs to be pushed a lot more. Um, and I think that if if it dies right now, if, if the Canadian opposition media don't continue to look at this really hard right now, uh, it's just going to happen again, and the government's going to continue to ignore it. And so, at one point, you know, you have to wonder. Uh, when do Canadians say enough's enough and start start looking at China and start looking at their own government? Yeah, well, lots to think about uh, at the tail end of this year and, of course, uh, into 2022 as well. Jeremy, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Jess. Have a good day. That was Jeremy Nuttall, reporter for the Toronto Star, talking about Canada-China relations and, of course, tennis star Peng Shui. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, hi, Jess. Just calling about the potential restrictions coming up. We are very COVID tired and we are not going to behave. Well, we'll behave, but we're not going to adhere to all the restrictions. That was just one of uh, many calls we're getting on our buzz line in regards to our question of the day. Are you going to follow the recommendations from Dr. Henry and Health Minister uh, Dix uh, that was announced last week that indoor personal gatherings be limited to household members plus 10 guests or one additional household as long as everyone is vaccinated? Uh, We were talking earlier today about just pandemic fatigue. And folks obviously want to do what's right for society, but also miss time with their family and friends. And we're just wondering if people are going to follow the rules. And uh, obviously more uh, restrictions uh, and enforcement is expected today um, as not only Mr. Dix and Ms. Henry speaking at the press conference, but we're also expecting uh, Mike Farnworth, the Minister of Public Safety, which does suggest uh, enforcement and restrictions uh, will be introduced uh, as well today. But that is the bigger issue because Omicron um, becomes front and center in regards to uh, COVID and how we respond to it across this country and around the world as well. Well, for more on Omicron and uh, the restrictions, but more importantly, the science behind this particular variant, we're joined by Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. Dr. Conway, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, so tell me, could you explain to me, and more so me and probably even our audience, (laughs) why is Omicron growing so quickly, this particular variant? Why is it moving and growing so quickly? So there's two key things. One is it is more transmissible. So for every contact that can transmit COVID, it is more likely now that you become infected in the era of Omicron than in the era of Delta. And also, it looks as if vaccine protection wears off more quickly and more significantly with Omicron than with Delta. Those two things together make it so that when Omicron enters a population, it spreads much more quickly, creates many more cases in a shorter period of time. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that I've heard on different radio shows here on CKNW, people calling in, is saying, look, it's mild or it's like a common cold. 
Is it premature to assume Omicron is a, a milder variant? Oh, absolutely. We must recall that hospitalizations and deaths are lagging indicators, meaning that they are noticed several weeks after an outbreak has occurred. So on Saturday morning, there was only one death that had been reported. And by Saturday evening in the United Kingdom, there had been seven deaths. There's a death that's been reported in the United States. It may be that it is less severe on the whole, but it still can cause fairly severe disease. And we must think of it as another version of COVID rather than the common cold. Now, one of the other things, Dr. Conway, that has been a part of the broader conversation here in British Columbia in regards to COVID has been um, uh, ramping up booster shots, the availability of booster shots and the availability of rapid tests. What impact, if we were to do so, would this have in regards to the protection of our citizens and particularly dealing with Omicron? Well, announcements that were made yesterday by Moderna shows that the administration of a third shot ramps up protection very significantly and very quickly. So that would be an important tool in all adults, frankly, in combating COVID and the Omicron variant here in British Columbia. In terms of the rapid test, their main usefulness would be to identify more cases more quickly in the community and from there identify transmission networks more efficiently And that also would be an important tool in helping to reduce spread. Both of these things we need going forward. Have we been too slow in ramping up booster shots or making booster shots available for our citizens and particularly making rapid tests available as well? Well, there's there's still time to catch up. I mean, as we rely on the science, which has served us well over the entire pandemic, we see the information on both of these issues being generated almost on a daily basis. And as that happens, we need to have the structure in place to incorporate that science to help us in these very difficult times. People are tired. People are disappointed. They can't just be hearing about more restrictions. They have to be hearing about solutions. And as we identify solutions, how quickly we are going to implement them here in British Columbia in parallel with any restrictions that public health deems necessary. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, Dr. Henry has been front and center uh, in regards to our response to this COVID, uh, to COVID, and as you said, uh, we've relied on the science. Um, you know, only she would know. Uh, only she would know in regards to what she has to deal with every single day. I, I have a sense of it, but you also have a very tremendous role as, as a specialist of the Vancouver uh, Infectious Disease Center. Um, what is going through her mind as she looks at the tremendous amount of data that comes to her every single day? And today, she's got a press conference at 1.30 that um, the province will be watching very closely because it impacts literally uh, millions of us in this province uh, in regards to how we spend our Christmas, how and if we're going to travel and all those things. What is she thinking today moving forward in regards to Omicron? Well, in the short term, she has to consider the impact on the healthcare system that any more significant increase in the number of cases that are reported on a daily basis would have. And the immediate goal is to mitigate that risk. Another goal that has to be in her mind at this point is whatever rules that I choose to put in, what can I do to make sure that the people of British Columbia understand these rules, understand that they are necessary, and will adhere to them? Because there's no sense in putting in rules if people are going to spend their time trying to find ways around them. So I think she needs to reassure us all 
that the rules are necessary, but that she's doing everything she can to protect the people of British Columbia. And she understands the pain that everyone is going through, and is also considering that in her decision-making. Yesterday, uh, uh, Provincial uh, Affairs columnist for the Vancouver Sun, uh, um, Vaughn Palmer, and I were having this conversation, and, and you know, we were talking about the scientist or the public health officer, the politician, and public sentiment, and keeping those three sort of pillars balanced in some capacity, and sometimes uh, the politicians will, will will hear the science and say, look, but I, I've got to keep an eye on public sentiment, and sometimes you go with just the science, which is probably the right thing to do, but it can have an impact on public sentiment, saying, you know, worry about us as well, this is too, bi- too, bi- too much of an impact on my restaurant or me as an individual. Uh, how would you rate our overall response in the last 24 months compared to other provinces? or other nations? I think it's been generally good. I think that in some cases, we have resisted some of the calls early on for uh, more rapid boosters, for more significant access to rapid tests. I think that there are downsides to using rapid tests in that uh, they may be used for, uh, for the purpose of avoiding vaccination of uh, relying on on negative tests to get around public health rules. And I think that on that particular point, that uh, we we were probably a bit too cautious, but there's still room to to move back on this. And we need to give this to people as as a tool to empower them, especially if we're going to expect them to adhere to potentially more significant restrictions. So in, in general, we've done well. But there's still time to sort of uh, revisit issues where we may not have done as well as we have could, as, as we could have. Dr. Conway, thank you for your time and your incredibly, as, as always, thoughtful comments on this issue. Really appreciate your time today, sir. Always a pleasure. All right. That's Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist, Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Center. This is Mornings with Simi. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joel. You know, any morning with Elvis is is a good morning. You know, I, that's that's my thinking. And uh, good uh, thanks to our uh, technical producer Greg Shot for that. Uh, I, we were talking about this yesterday. It's always the classics uh, that get me during Christmas, and uh, uh, he's been on point as uh, as they were yesterday as well in regards to the music. Well, before we get to our next segment, I wanted to just read out a tweet from one of our listeners, Andrea from Vancouver. Uh, this tweet was sent at seven ten, so about ten minutes ago. Uh, Andrea tells us that long lineups have already started at, at this COVID nineteen testing site at Heather and Thirty Third in Vancouver. Line stretches about two blocks already, and the site doesn't open till 8 a.m. Wow. So lots of folks are still uh, obviously going to these COVID-19 testing sites, and lineups are already starting. And as as Andrea says, uh, that site doesn't open till 8 a.m. I'm hoping we'll have more resources for these these sites, uh, a lot of these clinics, particularly in the interior that we've been talking about. Hope to have some of those answers um, at 1.30 at the press conference for doc- by Dr. Henry and uh, Mr. Dix and uh, uh, Mike Farnworth this afternoon. Well, one individual who will be watching that particular press conference closely is Ian Tostenson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. If BC follows something similar to the Ontario and Quebec restrictions, then only 50% capacity would be allowed in most restaurants. Ian, good morning. Good morning, Jazz. How you doing? I'm doing well. So tell me, what's going through the minds of your members this morning uh, with a press conference expected at one thirty? 
Well, I think it's surprising considering that last Friday, um, you know, the you know what we put out was um, you know a message that we could operate, you know, very strict in terms of vaccination card and and scanning the card, and we felt really good about that. And I think even further, Jazz, we felt that we are the safe alternative for people uh, that aren't having parties or aren't having New Year's parties, and we can manage them in a very controlled situation. But um, so that seems to have shifted. Um, if I think they're very nervous. I had all sorts of text messages this morning and last night saying what's going on, what's going on. Maybe we're headed towards, I don't know, I have not talked to anybody in government yet, but maybe we're headed towards a capacity reduction. Uh, and that's, that's in its own right um, great because we'll still be open, but it's got some real challenges. As someone said last night, I've got reservations. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make money at 50% in a restaurant. So that's a bit of an issue because a lot of the income supports uh, for restaurants are off the table right now. So we've got to, we've got to reinstitute that. If we're going to be 50% occupancy, we've got to find some way to balance that scale. And I worry about our staff as well, too, because 50% capacity, if that happens, uh, means less hours for our part-time staff. And we're already challenged that way. So we're going to get through this and we're going to do absolutely what's important for our community in terms of the health side of it. But it, it's going to be a tough one, no question. I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, just feeling a bit sad, a little bit blue, blue Christmas myself, according to Elvis, mm-hmm. that we're in this position. I thought that, you know, we were going to have blue skies for this Christmas, and of course all of us aren't seeing that. I remember your uh, comments uh, last week when the first uh, recommendations did come down. Can your industry and in, in individual restaurant owners afford this? I mean, the uh, restaurant industry is always known for having very tight margins, 2, 3, 4, 5% profit margin at best. Uh, it's, it's a tough business owned by a lot of independent operators, small business owners. Uh, can your industry afford, let's say, a 50% capacity reduction, let's say, up until the end of January? Uh, or can we expect restaurants to just shut down i think i think this is the fatal one uh to be not be dramatic here but uh it's that because there's no supports uh, when we closed in the past there was a rent subsidy and wage subsidy and that's been pulled back significantly by the the federal government and we were sort of getting used to living off that because business was coming back but if we go to 50 percent capacity there is is going to be a real disaster this people are the CFIB uh, said that only about 36% of all small businesses that they survey in, in Canada are making any money. And a large part of that is re- our restaurants in Canada. So, no, it's, this, is, this is, now, you know, a couple of things that we can do. We can, you know, you, if you don't go to a restaurant, um, you can buy a gift certificate uh, for someone for their stocking. Go online, your favorite restaurant. You know, I was thinking this morning you could actually – not go to a restaurant, but pre-buy your dinner and go and do it in January. So there's a number of ways that we can still connect with their industry, but just defer it a little bit until we, we settle. Because, I mean, job number one, uh, at, at when it's all said and done, Jazz, is the health and safety of the communities that we operate in. That's most important. And if we have to take another round 15 shot here in a heavyweight match, we'll do it. We've, we've done it before, but... We're going to need a little bit of support, I think, from the federal and provincial governments in this one financially. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a challenge. I mean, we got provincial health officers making these decisions. The federal government is tightening those rules uh, in regards to, say, the compensation for restaurants just because of uh, our significant deficit. Um, you know, it, it's a challenge at the end of the day where you have to balance public safety, which you've talked about being the the priority 
But when you're losing 10, 20, 30% of your restaurants uh, or going out of business, and I'm just throwing that number out, um, it, it's going to be a significant yeah. impact on the economy. But there's a, it's, it's very difficult to balance this. And I, I think we're heading into uncharted territory because you raise a very good point. The, comp- the, the compensation that was there, or at the very least, the help that was, the financial help that was there from the federal government, because they write the bigger checks, and they're the only ones that can. If it's being tightened, as we're bringing in these reductions, and even in capacity, uh, this is actually probably the, a much worse period than what we were talking about a year ago or even 18 months ago. Oh, I, I truly think so, um, because of that uncertainty. And, and what, or I think, you know, and the public policy needs to line up and say, we're going to do this, or should be you know what, close your eyes, we're going to support this, and we'll have details to follow. But you can't take, uh, you know, a business person, an owner, and their staff and just throw them into this uncertainty and say, well, you know, if, if in fact, you know, this happens, and then we have to work for the next month or so trying to figure out where all the supports are, if there are any. You can just imagine the stress of those business owners and employees wondering where the future is. Yeah. So, you know, that, that just needs, I mean, the federal government, you're right, should just step up and say, you know what, 100% we're in like it was before, details to follow it it's on the 6 o'clock news. And that way, at least people psychologically, and you've been talking about this this morning, psychologically we're still moving forward. But, you know, when you take those kind of blows, it, it, people get disenchanted a bit, for, absolutely for sure. Yeah. Ian, thanks for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. We'll talk to you for Christmas, I'm sure. Absolutely. That's Ian Dostinson, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Uh, Ian and, and his members will be watching that press conference very This is Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. You're listening to Mornings with Simi right here on CKNW. Thanks for joining us. Well, let's take a look at the economy. We've talked about the restaurant industry and its impact. We looked at health and safety. Let's, let's look at the broader uh, economic uh, activity here in our province. Of course, we're still reeling from the economic impacts of the pandemic, but extreme weather events continue to rattle BC throughout 2021. The heat dome caused wildfires that destroyed communities and directly impacted air quality. The BC floods caused major damages to roads and highways uh, that would impact supply, and the pandemic has continued to make life difficult for several British Columbians. We're joined now by Chief Economist for the Business Council uh, of BC, Ken Peacock. Uh, he is the Chief Economist there. He joins us this morning. Hi, Ken. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning. We we, we thought, uh, you know, uh, it's the tail end of the year. We should be celebrating Christmas. We got a press conference at one thirty with Dr. Henry talking about further restrictions. Uh, I listened to the weather forecast. We're potentially snow this weekend and, and freezing. So the um, 2021 is going out uh, just as it came in with lots on our mind and a lot of issues before us. Uh, I'm going to ask you a rather broad question. What do our overall, the economy overall look like for you heading into 2022? What 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 are the so what keeps you up at night and what are some of the positives you're seeing as well? Yeah, the um, we just came out with our forecast issue, Jazz, at the, at the business council. Uh, what our outlook is for kind of wrapping up 2021 and into 2022. And 2021 was actually a strong year because of a rebound effect from the closures, uh, but we still expected growth to be around four percent uh, in 2022, which which is a strong number. You know, quite a mm-hmm. bit higher than kind of a two and a half percent rate that is normal uh but wow things are things are changing rapidly um and I, I think i would characterize the the uh 
going into 2022 as sort of a weak weak handoff because of obviously the the weather events. Uh, some of the current economic indicators were also a little soft. So very mixed conditions, and of course. The Omicron variant is throwing a great deal of uncertainty uh, over, over casting a great deal of uncertainty over the whole uh, outlook for the year. But, but right now, I, I think the weather events we're going to recover from, most of the economic impact is going to be in, in this year, although, of course, it will trickle into next year. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, still relatively optimistic, but but really a big, big question mark now now going into next year. And it's too early at this point to to see whether Omicron's impact will be temporary or whether it be long term. Right now, I was listening to Michael Levy uh, about an hour ago, and he was mentioning our our financial analyst here. He was saying on the global economy, there's hopes that Omicron is a two or three week hit, not something that's going to be two or three or four months, which could be significant for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm far from an expert in, in the pandemic realm, but it is it is looking like that. And I mean, I will I can say this. The thing about um, being more transmissible is that it grows and spreads more quickly, but it falls down the other side of the curve. Uh, so that ra- that rapid exponential ramp up. Uh, you generally see the, the the downward fall kind of also be quickly as well. So I think that's might might be what they're referring to, and that that would be great because our tourism sector. That's part of the reason we had a, sort of expected a, a, a stronger four percent growth was, uh, you know, a few weeks ago when we did a forecast issue, we fully expected this sort of gradual recovery in the tourism sector, air transportation uh, industry to to unfold in twenty twenty two, particularly in the second half of the year. Definitely a bit more of a question mark around that now. Yeah, I, a couple of weeks ago, um, when the federal government gave its fiscal update, uh, I think we we're all celebrating that instead of a 154 billion dollar deficit, it'd only be a 144 billion dollar deficit. And those are numbers I'm sure you and I would both would have laughed at uh, pre-COVID. Uh, on on the um, provincial side, the initial forecast at one point, I think it was eight, to, somewhere between eight and ten billion dollars for deficit. We're at about a billion and a half because the economy, as you say, has uh, rebounded. One of the things that does concern me, though, you've got extreme weather events, you've got COVID recovery. Um, I was t- speaking to former uh, finance minister from the BC Liberals, uh, Mike DeYoung, and he expects us not to balance our budget provincially this decade. It'll be very difficult for, for a variety of reasons. This is his personal opinion. And my worry is that that school that we've promised to build in a very busy district like Surrey or that community center in uh, Coquitlam or that uh, earthquake upgrade for that school in Vancouver, that we have such um, so much spending to do in regards to, first of all, COVID recovery, but the diking system that we have to pay for and all the build back better, as we say, for all our highways and everything else. A, do you see a balanced budget this decade provincially, number one? And number two, uh, my concern is deferrals, that we defer other spendings on hospitals, schools, and, and, and daily life because we've got so much in regards to cost in the near term right now, in regards to how the – I'm curious as to how you feel, how you think our budget's going to look look like in the medium and long term. Yeah, that's that's, that's a good question. The, the, the budget, 10 years, I mean, I, I will probably wouldn't, wouldn't be quite that bold. I mean, there is a good chance we could see the budget balance over, over you know, an 8- or 10-year period. Um, challenges in the near term, the surprise on the upside, I, I, I do take as good news. I mean, the deficit wasn't as large – as anticipated, in part, as you mentioned, because of stronger growth. Um, the I, I wouldn't be too concerned about small deficits, Jazz. It's just a matter of whether we get larger structural deficits. 
uh, b- built into the system and, and where debt sort of accumulates and we pay, have a, a bigger cost of carrying that debt burden. But right now, you know, I, I do have to say BC's in good fiscal shape. Uh, we, we were in good fiscal shape heading into the crisis and we've come out of it reasonably well. The federal government has actually carried most of the weight in terms of uh, spending here in the crisis. So, um, you know, I, although it's a bit of a marker, kind of, we will never balance our budget. I, I, I think we will be reasonably close, and there, there is a chance, depending on uh, fiscal management and stuff, that, that we will. So I'm not quite as uh, concerned as the former finance minister. Uh, and in terms of capital spending, this is a good question. There is so much building going on that it is challenging finding workers, and there really is this whole issue of capacity. I think you put your finger right on it. I mean, do we have enough capacity in British Columbia to build additional hostels without putting upward pressure uh, on on costs and uh, con- construction activity? Uh, I think that's an open question. I think right now there's no doubt that capacity uh, constraints are in play. I'm not sure how much more room we have. If I look out a few more years, though, Jazz, the really interesting question is, you know, say two or three years from now, when these big capital projects in British Columbia start to wind down. So the, the building of the pipeline and the, <clears throat> sorry, the LNG facility up north, uh, and then hydro, of course, when all three of those kind of ramp up, that's, that's, a, that's a big wind down from a huge elevated level of construction activity. So there will be a space a few years from now where there is more capacity. Mm-hmm. Kind of trying to time this, of course, is very difficult. But uh, but the capacity in the near term and over the next couple of years, I think, is very, it's a very good point to raise and a concern that we are watching, definitely. Yeah, no, you raise a very good point in regards to the, those three big projects, the, the TMX pipeline, uh, Site C, which is, I think, well, it's well past $20 billion in regards to the overall cost, and the LNG project, which is $42 billion. Uh, British Columbians, because we've been so focused on COVID, sometimes I think don't realize that one project alone is one of the largest uh, industrial projects on the planet. Two thirds of those forty of that forty two billion dollars for that LNG line um, is being spent here in British Columbia and in Canada. And you're right that those projects do help in regards to work for people and taxation. Uh, and uh, I worry over the long term, just in regards to roads, bridges, highways, all those other things that need to be done, plus community centers and, and how we handle the budget as well. So as uh, often said, may you live in interesting times, and I think you and I can both agree we certainly do at this point. Thank you so much, Ken. You're very welcome, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, all right. That's Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Senior Vice President at the Business Council of British Columbia, giving us a snapshot, our fiscal snapshot federally and provincially, and, and what we can expect um, in 2022. This is Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Johal. You're listening to Mornings with Simi right here on 980 CKNW. You know, when I uh, uh, finish up my afternoon uh, show at 6 o'clock and I walk to my vehicle, it's usually about a two-block walk, there probably isn't an evening that goes by when I'm walking back to my car that I don't run into a, a delivery driver from Uber Eats walking by the art gallery, skip the dishes, or DoorDash. They're part of daily life, uh, uh, these home delivery services. Well, yesterday we learned that BC is extending a cap on the fees uh, for food delivery services in regards to what they can charge to restaurants for at least another year. To talk to us about this new cap is Ravi Kalo, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery, and Innovation of British Columbia. Minister Kalo, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Josh. Thanks for having me. So tell me, um, explain the reasoning to me in regards to why uh, you wanted to cap these fees. Well, Josh, uh, you kind of highlighted it, uh, which is uh, this uh, growing trend, I guess you can say, of 
more and more uh, food deliveries being done as opposed to people eating in restaurants. And certainly the pandemic has uh, increased the speed and the rate uh, of that transition. Uh, we have heard clearly from the restaurant industry that uh, when the pandemic was just starting, you know, often the rates were 10, 15 percent that were charging to uh, restaurants for every single meal. But as the demand increased, but also as restaurants had no choice because the pandemic was uh, not allowing people to uh, visit their establishments, uh, those rates were being increased to 15, 20, 25. In fact, many uh, restaurateurs have told me that well over 30%, they were losing money on every single transaction. And so they were trying to make tough decisions whether it was worth keeping a restaurant at all. And so uh, what we did was, as a province, we brought in a temporary short-term uh, cap. Um, and what we announced yesterday is that we're going to extend that cap till the end of December 2022 to uh, 20%, which ensures the companies still make good money, but the restaurants can continue to function. Is there any other jurisdiction in, uh, in Canada or the United States that's doing something similar to what you announced yesterday? Yeah, there, there's two states in the U.S. that have done that. I know that there's another couple of provinces that are considering this now, given that it's been successful for the restaurant industry here in B.C. Uh, we've had the B.C. Restaurant Association, the Canadian Restaurant Association, uh, ABLE B.C., everyone that's kind of involved uh, in, in representing restaurant owners say that this was one of the biggest pieces to ensure that our restaurants could survive the pandemic. And so I think you're going to see other jurisdictions uh, go in this direction as well. Uh, I recall um, going f- uh, for breakfast in one of my favorite spots in Richmond uh, a couple of years ago. And I knew, I knew the restaurant owner uh, because I was a regular there. And one day he comes by, sits down on my chair, on my table, and he was explaining uh, how these uh, delivery services work for him as an owner. And I swear he went on a good 10-minute rant uh, because of the exorbitant costs. This is pre-pandemic, by the way, uh, in regards mm-hmm. to what he had to pay uh, and the little money that he made. Um, is there any thought to making this permanent here in British Columbia in regards to the 20% processing fee? Because right now it's 15% fee for delivery and 5% on processing fees. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, it also means that these companies cannot take away a worker's tips either. That's correct. Yeah, we put in protections for workers uh, as well uh, when we brought in the legislation, which was unanimously supported in, in the legislature. Uh, I have to say, I guess, I'm not sure about a long-term solution. Uh, I will say that this was a a temporary measure, but certainly our hope is that we can find something that can work going forward. Uh, You know, uh, that example that you shared of that restaurant owner, uh, that can be multiplied by thousands (laughs) across BC. Uh, Every time I talk to a restaurant owner, this is what they complain about, which is uh, it was, you know, it was okay when it was in the beginning and it was a lot less, but when people became really dependent, the increase was just too high. And, uh, and so it is a major source of frustration. And, of course, the other one was liquor pricing. Uh, and we reduced liquor pricing by 25% and made that permanent. So that was a big piece that's helped them. But this right here is, is, is massive. And I won't be surprised if many other jurisdictions follow suit. 
Well, I was just looking uh, as I was the, looking into this story. Uh, uh, there's a gentleman named I guess Kelvin Lum, who's a director of finance for the White Spot chain, uh, and he said yesterday yesterday that in his opinion, twenty percent is still too high, uh, but it does allow restaurants, in regards to what you're doing, to earn some profit on deliv- delivery sales. I mean, I, I wasn't uh, trying to be provocative here. Even twenty percent for delivery uh, seems high. I would agree with Mister Mister Lum there. I mean, would would this would, so this is lasting a year. Could you come back and look at it after that year with your caucus and particularly your cabinet and, and make this a permanent? Or at the very least, even consider reducing it down to a, a total compensation, of, let's say 15% for, for delivery, which is a processing fee and, of course, the delivery itself. I would still would like to believe Uber, with its many other uh, services, including its uh, test kitchens that uh, they're involved in in regards to deliveries, plus, of course, the ride-healing portion of it, that they could afford something like that. Um, would it be something you'd want to be pushing yourself personally moving forward? Because, I, I like I said, I, I would agree with Mr. Lum here. 20% still in this pandemic sounds really high. Could you see yourself or would you see yourself advocating for something that's at least 20% or even potentially driving this down to 15% and making it permanent? Well, certainly the the delivery app uh, companies can afford it. <laughs> they can clearly afford it. They're still making a lot of money, um, and uh, and and you know it's something for us to consider. We we're not there yet. There's just a, there's just so many challenges that we're facing that we're trying to manage all at the same time. And so it, it is something that we'll have to consult with the sector, consult with the restaurant industry, consult with the delivery apps on something uh, as we go forward. We're not there yet. This is an extension of something that's temporary. Um, but but you're right. Uh, you know, Calvin made the point yesterday. Uh, I think it's a fair point, which is 20% is maybe too high for some restaurants. But we tried to strike a balance to ensure that the companies that are providing the service can still make their profit and, and restaurants can still survive. And, uh, you know, it's always hard to know if you've struck the right balance. I think we have. But we'll continue to monitor this in the in the coming months and, and then consider what the next steps may be. And since I have you here, I had Ian Tostenson from the BC Restaurant Association join us. And obviously, like many British Columbians, he'll be uh, watching the 130 press conference of Dr. Henry and Minister Dix uh, and uh, Minister Farnworth in regards to rules and restrictions that uh, will be coming down at 130. He says he's quite concerned in regards to the impact uh, even uh, capacity uh, limits would have on the Restaurant Association. He says an earlier days, uh, they were able to deal with it only because there was compensation, predominantly federal compensation, and of course, uh, some dollars from the provincial government. Is there any consideration if there is a capacity uh, challenge moving forward, if there is a capacity reduction, that you as a minister would look at potential compensation for restaurant owners, or at the very least lobby the federal government to continue across this country? Uh, Because the federal government has a tremendous amount of pressure from the public and many others to reduce this compensation, deal with the deficit that's there right now as you deal with COVID. But if we have a capacity reduction, that's a lot for a lot of these small business owners to deal with. Yeah, Jess, I, I can't get into specifics because I don't know them yet. I've got a meeting with Provincial Health Office uh, soon uh, to uh, hear from them about what measures they believe uh, need to be put in place. I think it's important for people to know uh, and, or be reminded that, uh, that the Provincial Health Office has powers to make decisions in the, in the interest of keeping the public safe. And, uh, and I respect that. I respect that a lot. And I don't step in to try to, um, to get them to do something different. So they're going to share with us what they think they need to do in order to keep people safe. We will, at that point, look at what the implications may be. And, and just from the beginning, we have provided the highest per capita supports 
for people and businesses in the entire country. And that's why I think we were seeing the economic recovery that we were because those supports were in place. And, and that's not going to change. We're going to continue to support people and businesses uh, through uh, any new challenges we have. And so we'll see what gets announced a little bit later today, and then we'll, we'll get to work. Uh, Mr. Cannell, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Thank All you. right. Take care. That's Ravi Kellum, Minister of Jobs, Economic Recovery and Innovation for British Columbia, talking about uh, the cap on food delivery services, which are capped at 20% uh, for one more year during uh, during COVID. And of course, uh, the tail question, tail end question there, talking about potential compensation or help for the restaurant sector if there is a capacity limit uh, moving forward uh, at the 1.30 press conference today. This is Mornings with Simi. Welcome back to Mornings with Simi. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. Thank you for listening. Hope your commute is going well today. I hope traffic is a bit lighter this week and you're able to get into work. But uh, one of the things that uh, I think over the next two or three days we're going to have to deal with is the cold weather. It is getting colder for most of us. Our heaters are on. We're in our warm blankets. We're enjoying a nice cup of hot chocolate in front of a fireplace. However, the reality for some is not the same as those who are homeless are continually seeking shelter and some place to get warm. Though Phoenix Society, the New Hope Church, the City of Delta and BC Housing are supporting extreme weather response by providing those in need with temporary emergency shelter spaces so they can keep warm this holiday and winter season. Joining us now is CEO of the Phoenix Society, Keir McDonald. Hello, Keir. Good morning, Jazz. Thank you for joining us today. Tell me more about this program. Yeah, we've. I mean, it's just come in the nick of time. We opened just late last week, uh, as you mentioned, at the New Hope Church in Delta. Um, it's just off 88th Avenue near 120th Street. Um, it's going to be open from 9.30 in the evening to 7 a.m. And, uh, you know, with the freezing temperatures just arrived, um, as I said, it's come just in the nick of time. Mm-hmm. Now, generally, when we talk about homelessness, we spend so much of our time in, in, in um, talking about downtown Vancouver. Uh, but give me a sense of some of the homelessness challenges that you have in in that North Delta, Surrey area. Yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, we do focus on some of the larger communities and those most represented in that Metro Vancouver homeless count. Um, but there are many communities that are actually quite underserved and, you know, don't have a permanent shelter, don't have supportive housing. And Delta is one of those communities that, you know, for the past um, number of years has had, you know, a small shelter, an extreme weather shelter operating in South Delta in Ladner, you know, that could only accommodate five individuals due to some of the COVID restrictions. So, you know, being able to offer this location for the first time in a central spot in North Delta um, really, really is pivotal. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to see some some demand over the coming weeks grow. So uh, how does the program operate in regards to, are you open every night or does there have to be a, a specific extreme weather alert for you to be offering what you offer? Yeah, that's correct. There is an extreme weather alert. And um, so as you can guess with, again, you know, the temperatures right now, minus three currently, um, the shelter space has actually been activated looking at the forecast for the next week, we're going to see, you know, as low as minus 15 overnight. So, um, you know, the, the criteria for activation is, you know, temperatures at or below zero, um, you know, or feels like at or below zero. Or, you know, where we started the season in November, you recall, the, the torrential rains. And so that's also a criteria where, you know, such is the rain that people just, just you know, cannot get dry. 
So, you know, there's some flexibility in the activation of that criteria, but um, we are in for a long stretch even after just opening. Mm-hmm. I, as I was parking my vehicle today, walking to work, uh, I was mentioning earlier I have about a two-block walk, and uh, there was a gentleman uh, sleeping in front of one of the, the, the stores here, retail outlets here in downtown Vancouver, in a sleeping bag. And, you know, I think it was about minus two, minus three this morning as I was uh, walking walking to work. Um, you know, you, you work with the Phoenix Society. Is there any sense for me why we are seeing so many more homeless? I know elected officials at the civic level, provincial level, even federal level, we talk about this a lot. Lots of money is put in into various programs across this country, but the problem doesn't seem to be getting any better. Uh, Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's a big question, Jazz. I mean, if we look back to 2020 and just before the uh, the pandemic, we conducted our last Metro Vancouver homeless count, and I think they found something like 3,600 individuals who were experiencing homelessness. You know, it's, um, we continue to talk about the same pieces. You know, poverty is obviously what's driving, you know, many people to find themselves houseless. Um, you know, throughout COVID, there's been impacts on people's housing, on people's employment, you know, and we also talk about things like substance use and mental health that, that often make people's housing situations untenable. So there's multiple factors, but you're right, it's not going away and it's, um, and it's, it is unfortunately getting worse. And, you know, really it's, still about that housing piece that, um, you know, we continue to work on, you know, supportive housing, on building, you know, non-market housing across communities. But again, communities like Delta have none of that to offer right now. So um, you do, we do see disproportionate impacts. The same thing across the Tri-Cities where we just opened uh, an extreme weather program in Port Moody this year. Again, not a community you would expect to see, you know, demand for homelessness services. However, you know, we were full over the weekend and 13 out of 15 beds last night. So, mm-hmm. you know, when these services do become available, you know, you mentioned, you know, see people on the streets. Hopefully these become an opportunity to get people inside, get them a warm drink, a warm night, um, and a place to sleep overnight, some fresh, warm clothes. Um, it really does, you know, help start the process to that recovery. Now, if people wanted to help or donate, um, how can they contact you and your organization? Yeah, the best way is through our website. Um, that's phoenixsociety.com. Um, you can also call in and, and find further details about how to more directly give in, in particular communities in our number 604-587-6690. Um, definitely this time of year, donations of warm clothes um, and, and money so we can do the purchases on behalf of individuals as well always go a long way. Mm-hmm. I recall when I was an MLA, uh, there was um, uh, uh, we were very close to opening up, the city was very close to opening up uh, uh, a homeless shelter. And at that time, it was going to be the largest one in Richmond. And I don't recall how many, what the number was, maybe 25 or 45. But it was actually uh, placed uh, in an industrial area, uh, uh, maybe a block, maybe two blocks away from the police station, actually. Um, but even then, there was opposition to a homeless shelter opening up uh, in an industrial area, not next to a single-family home residence or any residence whatsoever, but yet there are still a couple of businesses opposing a homeless shelter. Speak to me some of the challenges. I'm not sure if you had any challenges, but are there still challenges in regards to convincing neighbors, um, homeowners sometimes, about opening some of these shelters in and around, even in, in industrial areas or commercial areas? Yeah, no, it's a really it's a really good topic, and I think you know this wasn't the first year they've searched for a, for a location in North Delta, and quite honestly, many people thought it was going to be impossible to find a location. 
but again, credit to, to New Hope Church, um, the congregation there, the City of Delta and BC Housing for you know, persevering, and the local um, Delta Homelessness Task Group who really worked tirelessly over the summer to identify potential locations. And um, it's not easy, you know. I think there was meetings with a number of churches who so often um, are called upon to make available space. Um, it really becomes an education process. And, um, you know, increasingly, this program was carried on the backs of volunteers. And I think as we've seen through the pandemic, but also through the drug poisoning crisis, um, you know, supporting individuals has become a little bit more complex and volunteers really are relying on agencies and, and paid staff to, to help carry the load as well. So, you know, it really does take a team effort to get sites up and running and it doesn't happen quickly. I, we were working on months for this activation, but uh, as I touched on it, it really can't, it has really come just in time before Christmas and um, with these freezing temperatures. Kier, I want to thank you and your organization, the Phoenix Society, for all the work that you do. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jess. Thank you. That's Kier McDonald, CEO of the Phoenix Society uh, in North Delta uh, in regards to the extreme weather event and uh, the opening of a, of a facility there uh, to help uh, the homeless in regards to the uh, cold weather that we're going to be expecting or going to, going to see here in the Lower Mainland in, in the next week uh, or so. You can make donations uh, at donations at phoenixsociety.com and, of course, go to their website, phoenixsociety.com, for more information.